0: Hello, students. My name is Mike Estefan, and I thank you for joining me today on the EM Clerkship Podcast. On this month's Deep Dive episode, we are going to be talking about bradycardia. Before we begin, just a quick word from our sponsors at Pearson Rabbits Insurance. You will have spent at least seven years training and working your ass off to become an attending physician but tragedy can happen to anyone at any time. Disability insurance is a necessity to ensure that your time and your debt weren't for nothing. Stephanie Pearson at Pearson Rabbits is a physician who suffered a tragedy herself, ending her medical career prematurely. She fought hard and for years with insurance companies to pay out the disability benefits that she deserved. Now, she works to make sure that you don't have to do the same. Don't wait until it's too late. Check out Pearson Rabbits at www.pearsonrabbits.com and schedule a meeting with one of their team members today. Now, back to the episode. I just want to apologize in advance. As you guys can probably tell, I sound a little different, a little stuffy, and I actually have covid This is actually my second bout with COVID. My first bout was back intern year. It was in March or April. It was pretty early on in the first COVID wave. Um, But I will say that I am much more symptomatic now than I was that first time. So long story short, speaking is a bit of a challenge. And uh, I'm trying my best, but you guys can probably tell on the other end. So without further ado, let's get into things. First, we are going to discuss the general approach to bradycardia and its management. After that, we will briefly discuss the different etiologies of bradycardia and some that warrant special attention. Bradycardia we define in adults as a heart rate less than 60. When you are seeing a patient in the ED who is bradycardic, the first question you need to figure out is, is this patient presenting with symptomatic bradycardia or asymptomatic bradycardia? The reason being is because we typically do not treat asymptomatic bradycardia in the ED. Now, there are always exceptions. For example, patient who comes in for an unrelated chief complaint is found to be in third degree AV block. You're not going to not address their third degree AV block, but the vast majority of the time we do not treat asymptomatic bradycardia. Okay, so your patient is symptomatic from their bradycardia. This can mean a lot of different things. Sometimes it's mild, with lightheadedness, dizziness, shortness of breath, maybe some exercise intolerance. And sometimes it's quite severe. The patient's presenting with chest pain. They're confused or obtunded. They're hypotensive, etc. Now, the next thing you must figure out is, is this patient stable or is this patient unstable? These patients are considered stable if they are well-appearing, they have otherwise normal vital signs, and have relatively mild complaints. These are the patients that I will typically manage by trialing a couple doses of atropine for, and then digging into further diagnostics before pursuing more invasive treatments. So per ACLS, you should be giving one milligram of atropine every three to five minutes for a max of three milligrams. This is a recent change. I believe it was in 2018 when the dosing was 0.5 milligrams of atropine. Now, let's say the patient is unstable. Unstable patients are those who frankly just look like shit. They might be diaphoretic, they might be confused or have a change in mental status, they might be hypotensive in frank shock, or they might be complaining of severe chest pain. Unstable patients, I call for both medical and electrical treatments simultaneously. What this means is that I get the crash cart into the room and place the transcutaneous pacer pads on the patient. I will also have the nurse run and grab the medications. Let's talk about the medications first. Atropine is in the crash cart, so I will typically take this one out myself while having the nurse run to the med room to grab an epinephrine drip. In unstable patients, I will usually only try out atropine once because it rarely works. Same dose as before, 1mg IV. After atropine, you can use one of three medications, either epinephrine, dopamine, or isoproteranol. I prefer epinephrine mostly because you can make what's called a quick, dirty epi drip at the bedside while waiting for it to come from pharmacy, while the other medications tend to take a while to come from pharmacy. And here's a quick aside, how to make a dirty epinephrine drip. To make a dirty epi drip, the first thing you need to do is grab a 1 liter bag of normal saline and label it as an epinephrine drip. Guys, labeling it is so important. You cannot forget to do this. This is the first step. Label it, label it, label it. After the bag is labeled, you can grab the code cart dose of epinephrine, which is one milligram, and inject that entire milligram into the one liter bag of normal saline and then mix it well. What you just did, you put 1,000 micrograms, which is 1 milligram, into 1,000 milliliters of normal saline. So the end concentration is 1 microgram per milliliter. From there, you can run the bag as an epidrip at a rate of anywhere between 2 and 10 mics per minute as per a CLS protocol. I forget, did I mention how important it is to label this? Anyways, so that's the meds. Let's talk about the electricity. First, we start with transcutaneous pacing. This is quite simple. You place two defibrillator pads on the patient, preferably in the anterior-posterior orientation, and you set the defibrillator to the pacer mode. Don't forget to give some sort of pain medication like fentanyl, as it is a painful procedure, as Zach had mentioned on last month's episode. Next, set a heart rate at 80, and gradually increase the output until you achieve both electrical capture and mechanical capture. Electrical capture is when the pacer spike triggers a QRS complex on the telemetry monitor. Mechanical capture is when that QRS complex corresponds to a pulse that you can palpate on the patient. Confirming mechanical capture is important as it is very possible to have electrical capture without mechanical capture. Hopefully, you have now pseudo-stabilized your patient via medications or with electricity. Now, I say pseudo-stabilized because, let's be real, is a patient ever considered stabilized if they're receiving transcutaneous pacing? Patients get diaphoretic, the defibrillator pads slip off, I don't really ever consider those patients truly stable, but let's say we have pseudo-stabilized our patient here. The next step is to figure out if our patient needs a transvenous pacer. This is a very complex decision that takes into account both your hospital's resources as well as the etiology of the bradycardia, and there are no blanket rules here. For example, let's say we have a patient with a third degree AV block. I've worked at some hospitals where cardiology will roll the patient upstairs immediately to the EP lab and put in a pacer within minutes of diagnosis. These patients, sure, they can do fine without a TVP. They can go upstairs with transcutaneous pacing and an epi drip. However, I've also worked in places where I'd either have to transfer this patient or where the permanent pacemaker wouldn't be able to be placed until tomorrow. In those scenarios, a transvenous pacer would be the right decision. I'm not going to go into the nitty-gritty of placing a transvenous pacer today, so let's move on. We will wrap up by talking about the differential diagnosis of bradycardia. Now, during my intern year, I love mnemonics, and I had a mnemonic that I used for this. It's pretty popular. You may have heard of it before. It is not my own, but it is called Brady, B-R-A-D-I-E. Let's go through that real quick. The B stands for block all three types of heart block either due to one of the etiologies found in the mnemonic or due to an intrinsic conduction problem such as like sick sinus syndrome tachy brady syndrome etc the r stands for reduced vital signs that is hypoxemia hypothermia and hypoglycemia please address these immediately if found okay thanks The A stands for Acute Coronary Syndrome slash ACS. Now, don't get sidetracked by that third-degree AV block on the EKG and miss the obvious STEMI. Ischemia is a very common precipitant of bradycardia. Be on the lookout for it. D stands for drugs, such as beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, digoxin, and then also organophosphates. I stands for two things. It stands for infection classically Lyme disease or some kind of myocarditis. And it also stands for increased ICP, such as in the Cushing reflex, you know, where you get uh, abnormal respiration, hypertension, and bradycardia. And lastly, E also stands for two things. First, it stands for electrolytes, mostly hyperkalemia, but also hypermagnesemia and hypocalcemia as well as E for endocrine, so myxedema, coma. All right, that was a lot of information. Let's review it from the top. Let's say you have a patient who walks in presenting with bradycardia. First, you need to figure out if that patient is symptomatic from the bradycardia, as we rarely treat asymptomatic bradycardia. If they are symptomatic, determine if they are stable or unstable. Stable, again, meaning well-appearing, otherwise normal vitals, very mildly symptomatic, you can trial a few doses of atropine and start the patient's workup. Unstable patients, again, patients who look like shit, who are confused, who are diaphoretic, who have abnormal vital signs, you are simultaneously treating with medications while treating with electricity via transcutaneous pacing. Atropine is unlikely to work here, but you can try it. I usually then reach for epinephrine, but dopamine and isoproteranol can work as well. And then finally, you need to figure out if a transvenous pacer is indicated, and it usually is indicated if there isn't an obviously reversible cause or if definitive care isn't immediately available. And don't forget the causes of bradycardia. I use the mnemonic Brady, B R A D I E. B for blocks, meaning intrinsic heart blocks. R for reduced vital signs, that is hypoxemia, hypoglycemia, and hypothermia, A for ACS leading to cardiac ischemia, D for drugs such as beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, digoxin, and organophosphates, I for infection and increased ICP, and E for electrolytes and endocrine disorders such as hyperkalemia, hypermagnesemia, hypocalcemia, and myxedema coma. And that's all I have for you guys today. This is going to be one of my last recordings as a resident. Guys, I graduate tomorrow. How crazy is that? But I have a few more shifts after graduation before technically being done. While I am excited to have way more free time and a much larger paycheck, the feeling is truly bittersweet. I am saddened to leave behind my beloved co-residents, my attendings that have taught me nearly everything I know, and the tremendous group of nurses and techs who accompanied me in the trenches every single shift. For those of you who are about to embark on this journey, I have a few unsolicited words of wisdom. Residency is tough, but it ends eventually. The time passes by so quickly. You will never again have this cushion of supervision that you have now. Take advantage of it. Try new procedures. Try different ways of doing the same procedure. Learn different attendings' approaches to the same clinical problem. Ask questions, because one day you're going to graduate, and learning is going to come at a much greater cost. Get good with ultrasound, but don't rely on it. Be a team player. Ask the respiratory therapist to show you how to set up and adjust the vent yourself. Find the most experienced nurse and practice blind IVs with them. Learn how to take your own vital signs and how to get your patient hooked up on the monitor. Thanks for listening. You can always email me, mike at emclerkship.com. Until next month. Keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.